Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Noah, what's going on? Hey, man. Uh, I want to apologize. I am on a Starlink connection right now, so I may lag out at points, but all of my stuff Got is it. getting uploaded. At least, uh, at least Riverside claims that that's going to be happening. So, where are you, if, man? Uh, I'm in Colorado, in in the kind of the mountains of Colorado. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I'd be curious your your take on this. Is it? It feels like it's been a trend the last five years, where you know maybe just like post Trump, where you have all these kind of like deranged takes on the left. Where anytime something on the right they don't like, they just call it fascist. And it's like, no, 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 like there's an actual definition of what we're talking about with fascism. And I'd be curious, like, you, you probably have a more reasoned take on this, but I, I feel like I just see these these crazy takes on Twitter all the time. Well, okay. I, I do have some some takes, but first I want to know why you pronounce fascism with a long A. Is that fascism? Is that a is that a thing? It's trendy. Got, Got it. it. Okay. Yeah. Fasc Le fascisme or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> It's French. All right. I'll accept it. Fascism. Um, yes. No. Um, this is old. This is really old. Uh, yeah. I, um, I mean, I was, I was exposed to the phenomenon of people on the left calling everyone fascists from like an early age. I remember reading it in one of my dad's old comic books from like the 60s. Um, you know, when he was a kid, my dad had this giant thing of old comic books, which I then read when I was a kid. And I was like, wow, there's a, some hippie calling some random guy fascist. Why is he doing that? That's not technically fascist. The guy's just a redneck. And anyway, um, and so it was, uh, and, and then Gore Vidal was debating uh, William F. Buckley and kept calling him a fascist. And then William F. Buckley threatened to beat up Gore Vidal in the middle of their debate. Um, so this is, this is old. This is really old um, fascist. The thing is, no one, no one cares because no one, you know, like, Fat people have gotten completely desensitized to the word fascist, and I think they probably were, you know, even a while ago. You just call people fascist enough, and people start laughing. Like, you know, yeah, like who who on the who on the left cares if they get called a communist? I mean, you get called a communist for wanting to like raise taxes. Like, oh, you're communist, left. You know, anyone's like, okay, I got called a communist today. So yeah, I, I think that's fair, but I, I feel like it, it, it really picked up on, on, at least on Twitter with, with Trump, right? Like in terms of maybe a little less esoteric and a little bit more mainstream to use it as a, as a neg. Sure. Right. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, on, on, I think the whole, you can't separate it from the whole Twitter phenomenon, right? Suddenly every um, journalist who had only reached people through their mainstream publications, through their pieces that they wrote and through feedback on those pieces, maybe if ever, was suddenly getting direct feedback from a whole bunch of people, which they assumed were their readership, which they assumed were the American public, which may or may not have been, you know, bored, sadistic teenagers in Bulgaria. But whoever they or, you know, whoever they were, journalists suddenly felt that they were getting, um, you know, this is this is their audience. These are the people whose approval matters. And it was likes and retweets on Twitter rather than any feedback for the post they actually wrote for, uh, you know, Vox or the Washington Post or whatever that that became important. Um, you know, and so and so the you know, the people on Twitter, be they Bulgarian kids or just, you know, American kids or bored people at work or just anyone with an axe to grind or all the all the crazy people who used to write letters to the editor. You know, and there, there was a reason no one paid attention to the letters of the editor because it was crazy people. And they, they even 
you know, the, the, the craziest 90% got filtered out and then the 10% got published and those are mostly crap too, or the comment sections on, on things, you know, like those were just the most aggrieved people with an ax to grind and some ridiculous ideology that determined everything they think about everything. And suddenly those people were shouting directly in the faces of of every mainstream journalist in America on Twitter and not only shouting in their faces, but if they liked what the journalists say, they would reward them with likes and retweets, which were this incredibly new and exciting metric of feedback, much, a much more direct, visceral, instantaneous, uh, you know, dopamine hit from feedback than they had ever gotten before. Uh, you know, because when you're working for a mainstream publication, you almost never see if people even like your stuff. You know, you, you occasionally get a few metrics filtered down through your superiors, but you really don't get much feedback about what the world is thinking about what you write. And so suddenly they were getting instantaneous feedback, but from all the wrong people. And so if I'm a, you know, a writer for the Washington Post in, in 2015 or something, and I say, oh, actually Trump is a fascist. And then everyone's like, 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 retweet, retweet, you know, and then that's, that's instant candy. That's instant dopamine for me uh, of a kind that I've never gotten before. And, uh, and I think that people just, that, that just completely overwhelmed people. You know, people were not prepared the amount of dopamine they were getting from this, this thing. Twitter basically took the comment section, the, you know, the, the crazies in the peanut gallery, which is a small fraction of the American public. If you look at who's doing power posting on Twitter, it's a very tiny, tiny fraction of the American public. And they're not demographically normal. They're just these, these enraged news junkies. Um, and of course, it's not just people from the United States. There's a lot of people from overseas who have politics that we would recognize as, as absolutely toxic and, and extreme. And so then, um, and so then, but, but, American journalists, because everyone speaks English, right? We're the, we're the, you know, language of the world. Every single person, you know, every single journalist was getting feedback for saying more extreme things, a uh, positive feedback, just reward, dopamine hit reward for saying extreme things and then getting attacked for saying reasonable things. And so what do you, that will push journalists all in the direction of saying extreme things and not saying reasonable things. So the people we were used to, you know, being more sober, like, mm, well, I don't think this per this Republican politician is actually a fascist in like, you know, 2006 or whatever, like will now would now have this immediate dopamine hit to saying Trump's a fascist. I mean, the truth is Trump is kind of a fascist. Um, that is true. It's, that's just like, it's, it's, you know, if you look at Trump's attitude toward how governing should work, there is no good reason not to, to call that fascist. Um, you know, Italy has a fascist party and they're less, they're less authoritarian than Trump. Um, so, so, so can we maybe break that down in the sense that he, he, he may be in words, but not necessarily in, in execution. There's a, there's a big difference between Mussolini and Hitler and, and Trump. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So Mussolini once said, uh, it's not impossible to rule the Italians. It is useless. I mean, Mussolini was one of the most ineffectual leaders ever. He contributed absolutely nothing to Hitler's World War II effort. He did really nothing except rhetoric. You know, he was extremely bombastic. Uh, you know, he was very good at, you know, sort of taking a lot of these idea, right-wing ideas that have been kicking around Italy and giving voice to them as a coherent ideology. He's the person who came up with the name the Axis. He's the person who essentially he was, he was a, a PR guy for Hitler while um, he didn't really do a lot. Like you didn't see Italians putting like, well, you, you did see a few like people rounded up in a concentration camps, but overall they were too ineffective to do it. Well, they they did invade Ethiopia. Yeah, Habakka. Yeah, I mean, but still, like he, he did a bunch <laughs> of stuff. I mean, Trump didn't invade any countries while he was in in, in power. Right, that is well, correct. Um, how do you define fascism, Noah? Because so, some people define fascism as the sort of the 
combination of the private sector and the public <clears throat> sector to achieve the goals of the of the you know ruler. And it, it yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious what is the what is That's the case for what, what would explain why Trump is is a fascist. That's overthinking. Fascism is just right wing authoritarianism. It's like if you basically, yeah, it's it's right wing authoritarianism. You take the standard right wing stuff, um, you know, kind of a, a blood and soil racial concept of nationalism, uh, you know, combine it with the idea that some people, you know, some people aren't, um, you know, good enough to good enough to vote or participate in our society. Uh, just st standard like right wing, you know fringe stuff and then you take it and then you combine this with a, a desire to to sort of not have people vote to uh essentially have a strongman leader control things that's you know we don't need a, a more complex subtle definition of fascism than that i don't think i think that if you look at fascism as an economic program in the in the 1930s i think what you see is um attempts to sort of uh, co-opt some of the economic appeal of communism. So, so communism had this whole economic program they were going to do transform the, um, you know, the, the way the economy worked and, uh, and the right wingers needed something to sort of match that and sort of kind of triangulate it because that was really, really popular with urban workers. The urban workers were working in shitty conditions and not getting paid much. And they were thinking, you know, wow, you know, the com this communism stuff sounds great. The fascists, you know, the right wingers needed, at the time, they needed something better than the classic right wing thing of, well, no, stand up for God and king and country and, and whatever they had been using before, sort of the monarchist, you know, uh, right wingerness of Metternich and like the French Revolution days. It wasn't working. It wasn't enough. Like it wasn't enough to counter the left wing. So they needed sort of an economic platform. So they came up with a, you know, sort of an economic nationalism thing that was in, it borrowed a few things from communism. And I see it as triangulation. I see it as kind of like, you know, Bill Clinton was was neoliberal and borrowed stuff from Reagan. Um, or, uh, yeah, like Eisenhower was a new dealer and borrowed stuff from Roosevelt. I, I think that the fascists borrowed something from their opponents, right? They borrowed something from the communists. They said, we're going to do some economic collectivism, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be our race that does it. It's going to be, you know, we're going to somehow combine it with traditionalism. Um, and I think that it was sort of, they never had a coherent plan for like, what will the, well, what will that look like? Uh, you know, they, they had war, right? When you have war, you do defense production and the government actually takes over a lot of the economy to produce tanks and, and whatever. Right. But then, um, but I don't think, I think fascism never had a really transformative peacetime economic agenda. Uh, but I, uh, until, until, um, uh, until the 2010s, because then China finally figured out what that looked like. China, um, you know, China tried all the communist stuff under Mao, it all failed. Uh, then China under Deng and uh, Jiang Zemin and to a certain extent, Hu Jintao did economic liberalization. They just privatized everything uh, that they could. They didn't privatize everything, but they privatized a lot. And it worked. It was great. You know, liberalism, economic liberalism worked and they made a bunch of money. Um, China got rich. But then um, Xi Jinping came in and he was like, OK, well, we need to have the government take control of stuff. But instead of, you know, this idea of a wor global workers revolution, we're going to have sort of this nationalistic and in some ways racial nationalistic chauvinistic 
idea of, of, of the purpose of that economic transformation. Nash, you know, greatness for our nation and more importantly for the, the majority race, the Han race within that nation, that was sort of China's idea under, that was Xi Jinping's idea. He is, you know, Trump has fascist stylings. Xi Jinping is like, you know, sort of the most perfect, the most perfect fascist that has existed in peacetime uh, ever. And so, you know, people call him Leninist. It's, it's, you know, he's, he's not really Leninist. Leninist might've described the CCP before, you know, under Deng and those people, not under Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, you know, he's clearly into the wrapping himself in the flag and the trappings of national greatness in our history. He puts out these programs saying like, you know, Xi Jinping thought has finally combined Marx and Confucius into one whole, you know, into one consistent thing. And of course, Confucius is just a stand in for Chinese nationalism for these people anyway. I mean, he's an interesting thinker, but he, these people use him as a Well, doesn't he call it Xi Jinping thought? He absolutely does. And he makes yeah. you study it hours a day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty limited on my Chinese uh, kind of political history here. But my, my understanding is there's like Mao and then Xi is the only other person who's in the kind of like CCP era, like had his own version of thought. Right, right. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. And the, 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 the thing is that Deng Xiaoping is the great man of Chinese history. He is the guy who took China from this impoverished, self-defeating, you know, destroyed backwater of a nation and turned it into the modern superpower that we know now. Um, the two people who came after him were both handpicked by Deng to be his successors. He anointed them as his successors. She is the first Chinese leader after Deng who was not picked by Deng. So, uh, but, but Xi Jinping is erasing Deng's legacy very quickly, and he is... Like, you know, I say Trump's fascist. Trump Trump is really a wannabe fascist, right? You're right that he's absolutely too disorganized to really get it done. Um, and, you know, so he would love, Trump would love it if he could just wave his hand and make, you know, factories full of like, you know, working class white people of the type he sort of imagined that he was friends with 50 years ago up here and the plains of Wisconsin, he cannot do it, right? He, he, he dreamed up this, this, factory in Wisconsin that never happened. And he dreamed that he would be able to yell at American companies to keep jobs here. And that never happened. And he had no real economic program beyond that. Like Trump never had an economic program. Like, so yeah, you know, Trump is, Trump is fascist in his, in his impulse, right? He, he, he daydreams about being fascist. So, so does this, does this go to the, the, the classic, like the inputs may seem fascist, but the outputs actually are not fascist. And where it's like a conservative person would say, I care about the outputs, I don't care about the inputs. And a more liberal person would say the inputs are actually the thing that matter. Maybe, but I, I'd say it's, uh, it's, it's more just the output is chaos, right? Like the output of, the output of Trump was chaos. Isn't it fair to say that before COVID, the economy was doing quite well? Um, and if that is true, does, does Trump get any credit for that? It was doing quite well. I'm not sure how much credit he gets. Um, uh, it was doing well in many ways, but it was not, we were really, really rapidly losing all sorts of competitiveness to China. If you, you know, Trump yelled at China, Trump put tariffs on China. Um, which which Biden has continued. Which Biden has continued. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I think that it did not, it didn't effectively address the problem that, that essentially all of America's technology was getting stolen by China and we were doing nothing about it. Um, China was 
if you looked at you know market global market share in high tech industries, China was climbing, climbing, America was declining, and and we did nothing about that. So we had a we had a nice short term boom in the in the late 2010s, right? Or and the and the mid 2010s too. So that the you know the Trump the economy is doing quite well in Obama's second term, and then that continued under Trump. Um, the reason I'm I'm not sure how much Trump had to do with it is because um, um, it didn't start with Trump, right? That that good economy started in 2013, right? Maybe 2012, and <coughs> like, and then it just you know the economy just recovered pretty much in a straight line. The argument for Trump having something to do with it is that. If it had been someone with worse economic policies, that recovery would have gotten derailed before it reached. But you know, the the um, you know we wouldn't have bounced back fully from the Great Recession. And then the argument that it wasn't Trump is basically like, oh, it's just the same trend as under Obama. And so I'm not actually sure which is true. If you look at analyses of Trump's tax cuts, which was his only real economic policy, and it wasn't really a tax cut either, it was just a tax shifting. It was a broad, strange tax reform in 2017. Um, Analyses are quite inconclusive about what it did. And so I'm still, you know, I've seen analyses that say this did nothing. I've seen analyses that say this did something, you know, not a huge amount of something, but something. I, so I don't think, um, I think on economic policy, Trump did very little. The The tariffs hurt China uh, more substantially than anyone realizes. And so in that sense, if you think we're fight, we're actually trying to stave off this rival, we're fighting an economic war of some kind. Then yeah, then then that was good. But in terms of economic benefits for America, uh, the benefits were probably negative. So it was probably hurting ourselves a little bit to hurt China a lot. And whether or not you think that's good depends on what you think. Trump that. Trump renegotiated NAFTA though, so that's actually a counter to saying you know he is truly nationalistic in the sense that you know it better integrated North America means more opportunity economic opportunity for Mexicans, which maybe are, you know, but, but that he's claimed to being hating the the growth trajectory and and. Export, uh, you know, concentrations of Mexico have not changed even a tiny bit since then. Like the the economy of Mexico is the same, um, and the, and Canada as well. Like that that renegotiation of NAFTA changed almost nothing about NAFTA. Like USMCTA is just NAFTA. Like it has a few slight different points, but it has made it, it it was a it was a big nothing burger done for show. I think hmm. Mexico is still growing very slowly. Uh, you know, and still exporting a lot of, um, you know, a lot of manufactured goods to America. NAFTA changed Mexico, but I don't think uh, Trump's renegotiation of NAFTA reversed any of those changes or accelerated any of those changes or anything like. Yeah, so I think that that was a nothing burger, but the the canceling TPP was a big was a big deal. And yeah, of course, of course, Democrats were also going to do that. Um, so everyone wanted to cancel TPP, but it was a bad idea. It was a mistake. Do you think Trump deserves credit for what he did in the Middle East relative to Obama as kind of a different, ta you know, sort of the uh, alliance with, with with Saudi or sort of a tough, tougher stance in Iran or sort of, uh, you know, more collaborative with, with, with Israel? It's hard to say because, you know, the Middle East is such a giant clusterfuck. Uh, I'm allowed to curse, right, on this podcast? Okay. Cl giant clusterfuck. Um, so we have, it, we have the war in Syria, which Trump intervened in a little bit more than Obama did. Um, oh, Obama put a line and then he didn't actually defend that, that line. He did not. Trump, right, Trump um, did intervene a bit. Uh, but I think that 
Russia's intervention mattered so much more that I think what America did in Syria didn't ultimately matter that much because essentially Russia did a massive intervention in Syria and we did a very small one. Um, more, more focused on ISIS as well, right? Right. Well, right. Exactly. So ISIS had taken over part of the um, western or eastern part of Syria. And so we sent like a few assets to fight ISIS, but ISIS wasn't actually very strong there. Um, had we not done that, a lot more Kurds would have died. But the job of fighting ISIS would have fallen to the Russians. So it would have been the Russians fighting ISIS instead of us. Um, I I would have done that. <laughs> but, you know, like, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Like, uh, quote, um, quote for the, the cold open. I don't know what I'm talking about. Why are you listening to me? Um, in Trump did intensify fighting ISIS in Iraq especially with the Kurds. That was good. It succeeded. Um, we then sort of abandoned the Kurds and said, and just walked away from our help for the Kurds, which was not a nice move to do and robbed us of a potential, you know, partner in the region of which we have now extremely few. Um, Trump did nothing to contain the influence of Iran. Well, I mean, he got rid of Soleimani. That was a pretty big. He did. He did. Yeah. Soleimani was good at his, he was good at his job, but he was also getting kind of old. Um, the, the Houthis, the coalition against the Houthis failed utterly. As you see, the Houthis have all this power now. They've essentially taken over all the populated parts of Yemen, except for one city on the coast. Um, they, they effectively rule Yemen now. Um, and they're a highly effective militia fighting force. The Saudis tried to stop them and failed. And the United States' assistance to Saudi to try to stop the Houthis was a failure. So that was a failure. Um, the idea of getting countries, uh, Sunni Arab countries to sign peace deals with Israel was a good idea. Um, they got UAE, a couple others. That was, that was a good idea. Um, I don't know how much it'll do in the long run, but I think that was probably the right tactic to take. Um, just, you know, make as many peace deals as possible. Um, China's influence in the Middle East did increase significantly during Trump's rule, but that might've just happened anyway, just because they had so much money. Um, so it's, it's always hard to say like, what would have happened had we not done this, right? It's, we don't, we don't really know the counterfactual. So if we hadn't helped the Saudi intervention against Yemen, would the Houthis be any less powerful there now? Like, I don't know. I mean, it failed, but is there anything we could have done that would have succeeded? I don't know. Like, so it's really hard to say this kind of stuff. Um, overall, I think Trump's Middle East policy probably didn't make a huge difference because there were some successes and some failures. Uh, I think, but overall he continued the, the, he pretty much continued the tendency of withdrawing from the Middle East that we had been on since the Iraq war. The idea of this is a region we don't need as much as we used to, because now we produce all our own oil. And this is a region that, you know, doesn't want us, that these people don't like us. Uh, we haven't, you know, we, we lost a lot of money, uh, fighting in Iraq. Um, and people, you know, we won that war, like it's, you know, we won the Iraq war clearly and, you know, and no one gave us any credit. In fact, people still say we lost the Iraq war just because they didn't like the Iraq war. And when they say, oh, we lost, that's just a stand in for, I don't like that we did that war because it was just useless. And so I think ever since Iraq, we've, you know, obviously being opposed to the Iraq war was part of Trump's campaign. That was like his pivot on foreign policy. Right. And that was good. You know, I mean, being opposed to the Iraq war was smart. And We've been withdrawing from the Middle East, but Obama began that trend and was excoriated for it by Republicans. Trump continued the trend and was praised for it by Republicans. 
And um, and then uh, Biden has pretty much continued the trend and been ignored on that. Yeah, I guess on the loss thing, I think that the other version of it would be the ROI of the war. So yes, we we, we you know you know in terms of just how much money we spent and then yeah. what did we actually get from it? By this standard, Britain lost World War One. Yeah, but I mean, in the case, like, what, what is Iraq now? Is this like, uh, in theory, a sovereign country, but it's, it's really just kind of like a proxy country for Iran. And then there's some semi-autonomous regions like Kurdistan. No, Iraq is more of a, um, it is a, it is a quasi-anarchic borderland that Iran has to spend a lot of its limited resources policing. That is what's really going on. Uh. I don't know. It feels like feels like at least the attacks that are happening on U.S. bases, Iran has a lot of influence in being able to just uh, have missiles Iran start flying pretty some fast. of the Shiite militias. Yeah. Other Shiite militias are anti-Iran, and they fight those Shiite militias. And then there's the Sunni militias, you know, in the uh, in the west part of the country, who fight the Shiite militias and sort of ethnic cleanse Shia whenever they get the chance. And then there's the Kurds who are doing their own thing, who kind of no one wants to take on because they're more organized. And so. Iran spends a considerable amount of resources supporting its own Shia militias in Iraq, which are not the only Shia militias. And the govern the elected government of Iraq does a fine ba does a balancing act between the pro-Iran and anti-Iran factions, and is ultimately kind of ineffectual. Uh, to say it's an to say it's an Iranian proxy is something that people say because they read it somewhere. But like, when's the last time you heard of Iraq doing anything? They don't. They do nothing. And the reason is because they're no one's proxy. They're not cohesive enough of a state to be a proxy. Well, I, to me, it reminds me of Lebanon. Like, in theory, Lebanon is a real country, but it's run by Hezbollah. So it's like a proxy of Iran. Well, Lebanon isn't entirely Lebanon isn't run by Hezbollah, by the way. Hezbollah is getting totally outbred by the Sunnis. And that's one thing people don't know about, about that. Like, Hezbollah, the reason Hezbollah hasn't attacked Israel probably is because their fertility rate is really, really low. And the fertility rates of the Sunnis, who are always talking about kicking Hezbollah's ass, are quite high. Or that there's a U.S. carrier group in, in the eastern Mediterranean saying, don't don't think about attacking the Israelis. I mean, there was a there was an article in The Wall Street Journal today that said that Biden uh, talked uh, BB down from doing a preemptive strike on like October 11th. So right. and that and that turned out to be smart because now Hezbollah is not in the war, you know? So Biden was quite smart to talk him down from doing this because Hezbollah is not in the war. Imagine if Bibi had done a preemptive strike and forced Hezbollah into the war. How fucked would that have been for Israel? All right. It seems like Israel is able to take care of its own. So talking down Israel from starting a second front in a war, like the idea of a preemptive strike was based on the idea that Hezbollah was eventually going to attack and we might as well get in the first punch. Guess what? They didn't. And there's good reason they didn't. Hezbollah, it's not just this time either, by the way. Hezbollah hasn't attacked Israel since like 2006. Like they once in a while will like lob a missile at Israel. Uh, you know, but, but really they've done nothing. And when you look at it, you see that Hezbollah's grip on power in Lebanon is incredibly tenuous. They don't really rule the country. They rule the southern half of the country. And the rest of the, the northern half of the country is, uh, you know, outbreeding them because the... the let Hezbollah recruits only from the Shia minority and the Shia minority lives in a bunch of dense apartment buildings and doesn't have any kids while the Sunnis live on like, you know, co sprawling compounds and have more kids. And so, um, yeah, so, so Hezbollah, yeah, they haven't, they haven't really done anything to Israel for a while. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. I want to, I want to zoom out if, if okay. Um, 
no, it's it's your your belief that we should um, spend more or, or you know invest more, you know, make sure that you, uh, in supporting Ukraine in the Ukraine Russia. I'll let you characterize your views in a second, but well, in the, okay, yeah, and and then also that we should spend less or invest less or um, in the Israel uh, in the Middle East in general. Is 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 that a, why don't you characterize your views and what you think we, we should do? And I'm curious what would need to be true to change your views in either of those conflicts. Well, I think that that ultimately Ukraine Ukrainian independence will not be viable unless it's supported by Europe. Um, Europe, especially Germany, must take over the long term defense of Ukraine. If it does not, the United States cannot be counted on. And that's not because I want it or not. That's because, you know, this is the threat from Russia. This is the threat from China. We are going to have to deal with China and there's no one else like, you know, Europe can theoretically overmatch Russia. They have a lot more people. They have a lot more industry than Russia. All they need, all they lack is political will and unity. So they lack political will, but they have all the, they have everything they need to just back down Russia and just beat Russia at anything. So a strong nationalistic leader in Germany that brings back a strong military. Something like that. Um, I mean, you know, Scholes has, has, has talked a big game, right? He talked about the, um, the I can't pronounce German, but like Zeitenwend or however that's pronounced. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I can't speak German. But but he, you know, this this idea of a big change. Now we're going to spend a bunch on the military. Well, they haven't. Um, Trump was correct in that Europe needs to hold up its end of this bargain a lot more. Trump was wrong to try to withdraw from NATO. That was a really bad idea. But it is it is correct that Europe needs to hold up its end of the bargain a lot more. Europe has been effectively a free rider on the United States alliance, and this must end. And I hope that the Ukraine war has woken Europe up to this. I think that it still has not quite. I think Europe is still in, you know, hand wringing mode and like, maybe we can write some regulations to ban Russia from doing bad things. No, no, you can't. Like, um, And so I think ultimately... Europe needs to take over the, the Ukraine effort, especially in terms of weapons production. Um, the United States cannot sustainably do this. We are not able to do that. Um, I believe we should still, you know, keep giving Ukraine weapons. I think we should. But then I, I think that we need to, you know, Europe needs to step up. And we need to be pressuring them very strongly to step up because ultimately this is not going to be like a United States defends Ukraine on our own kind of thing. Yeah, no, but, do you do yeah. you think that the Ukraine war is even sustainable, even if we keep giving them weapons? Though, in terms of what what Zelensky's saying, in terms of how many new recruits that they need, and you know their demography is even worse than Russia's, and, and it's a smaller country, and Russia can just keep throwing men into the meat grinder kind of thing. They can. I mean, so like Russia can. Russia, if it like throws its entire society into conquering Ukraine forever, uh, probably can. Uh, but it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna cripple Russia forever to do that. But if they view it as existential, yeah. But it's not like they're gonna exist if they succeed at that. Like they're gonna, you know, well, Russia, they, they already have bad demography anyway. So it's like all these countries: Germany, Russia, Ukraine, yeah, Russia's, Japan. Russia's, they, they, they're all toast. Right. Um, in a way, but but Russia. Yeah, no, Russia, um, you know, the, the longer it fights in Ukraine, the weaker it gets. I know that Russian propaganda likes to say, oh, we're getting stronger. We're getting stronger. They're not getting stronger. They are, um, they are pulling people and material away from everything that makes their economy sustainable. They are doing war production. Yeah, they're like, yes, we're ramping up war production, but they're, they're cutting oil production. 
and because they're they don't have the the manpower and the spare parts to keep the you know to keep the oil production going and that's their lifeblood ultimately inflation is rising in russia because they don't have the people to produce stuff um this doesn't mean ukraine can like you know defeat russia outright on the battlefield they can defend like we we've noticed that technology has gone moved toward the defense right like russia has been throwing huge assaults at ukraine and basically getting annihilated in all these assaults no one can really take ground you know the ukrainians couldn't take ground against russia russia can't take ground against ukraine um it's basically world war one right russia so, so what's the what's the end game so we're at world war one right the end game is that is that you know europe supports ukraine russia realizes that they're going to collapse if they keep doing this and they stop and do they or, just keep the the existing lines that they have and say that's that's yeah. it so Armistice. eastern eastern ukraine which is kind of the whole thing that they wanted they uh, no, they keep Crimea. I mean, they wanted. But, I mean, they, yes, they wanted everything, but they, but they're not going to get everything. They tried to march a parade into Kiev, a, a parade. The reason, remember that giant column of tanks? Yeah. Remember how they were all lined up? It was because it was a parade, and it got bombed, and it got and the parade got destroyed. They were going to have a victory parade where they were like, "Ukraine is ours now. You are just you are just little Russia." And, you know, that's what they that's what they call Ukraine, right? They call Ukraine little Russia, but Ukraine didn't want to be little Russia. They they're done with that. Um, uh, you know, the, an armistice line like uh, like North Korea and South Korea, I think, is the most likely thing to happen. But in terms of how this looks, um, do you know? But much so, how many the- more hundreds of thousands of people need to die for that to happen? Right? Like, if we if we think that that's a logical, I I agree with that. By the way, like in terms of just a pragmatic, put emotion to the side, it's like seems like that's the yeah. most logical outcome. Why why drag it on for another two years? Outside of the cynical belief that the U.S. basically is saying, oh, this is great, we we can just keep funneling weapons. And the Ukrainians can keep draining the power of the Russians. And it's not our, our troops getting killed or our civilians. In yeah, way. I mean, the Ukrainians want to fight. Like, they do not want to be under the boot heel of the Russians. Like, you know, Ukrainians aren't just some guys we called up and said, hey, guys, want to fight? Want to fight for us? We'll pay you to fight. No. But, but they, don't, they, they can't get the troops, right? Like, all these Ukrainians who are overseas, they can't get to come back. They, they're, they're like short manpower. They're, they're, I mean, they're a much smaller country than Russia. But... Um, the main reason that they're they're short of manpower right now is that people basically perceive less of a threat because Russia is not taking any territory. You know, when um, when Russia was like storming the entire country, uh, you know, in 2022, every Ukrainian was signing up to fight. Right. It was incredible outpouring of nationalism. And in fact, there has been incredible outpouring of nationalism. Now, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, well, the Russians, you know, are bogged down. So. um if Russia starts taking more territory, more people will sign up to fight because they'll be under existential threat. They're, um, as, uh, as Sally Payne likes to say, they'll be on death ground because Ukraine knows that if they are conquered by Russia, they're fucked. Like they will be, you know, shot, raped, enslaved, all this stuff relocated on mass. They know this, you know, this too. Um, no, no, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, so why can't we just move towards peace now? Right. And peace is How? maybe the wrong term because okay, it fine. seems How? like people are happy, yes. like How? an actual, you know, ceasefire and detail for me the way that we that we by which I hope I think you mean America. How, yeah, America. how do we do this? What do we do? Stop giving them money and weapons so that the country gets conquered. That's no, peace. but but basically make it clear to them that this is stopping. So you need to actually go to the table and say, let's let's actually work something out. But Putin won't, Putin has refused all negotiations. I thought that there was a deal early in the war that came out later. It was like some brokered by Turkey or something. And, and then, you know, the, about the green said deal? No. 
I, I, I forget the exact details outside of it's basically the U.S. State Department and Zelensky. Putin has refused no every Putin. Putin has refused every offer of negotiations. Mm, maybe may, I'm misremembering, but I, I was pretty sure that there was a deal in terms of the eastern provinces plus Crimea stay with Russia after mm-hmm. after the embarrassment at Kiev, and instead it was Zelensky saying no, zero zero negotiation, going to push all the way to the borders. If you can find but, me that, I mean, I, I, I've read a bunch of stories saying Putin has refused all attempts at negotiation. So it's not, you know, again, the idea that, that Russia is offering to negotiate an armistice along current lines, uh, Russia has flatly refused that. Russia has said, no, we will not do that. But I think part of it is also that Ukraine needs to say no NATO, right? Like they can be a country in between Russia and, and NATO. And they're that not- is a hypothesis. Yeah. And it's a thing that some pro-Russia people have said, but there's no indication that that is a thing Putin, you know, demands. Like the, when you look well, at- Well, wasn't that demands, a whole thing that Clinton negotiated in the 90s? It's basically said, yeah, uh, Ukraine won't be part of NATO. Georgia won't be part of NATO. And then, and then these countries start drifting towards, towards, you know, NATO. And then Putin in, invades Russia, Georgia, takes Crimea, and then and takes over Ukraine. This never happened. Um, the, Clinton did not negotiate any such thing in the 90s. That was that was not a thing that happened. Hmm. Okay. The thing is that that I, I I feel like I can go Google this afterwards and yeah, let's do it right now. Yeah, Clinton nineties NATO limitation. We we didn't expand NATO beyond you know a few initial countries at that time. Um, Bush's expansion of NATO was beyond Clinton's expansion of NATO, but we did not ever make any promises about where we'd expand NATO. The only time something like this has happened was with Finland, um, where there was sort of secret agreements to not uh, to have Finland stay as a neutral country during the Cold War. Um, there was no NATO. NATO does not uh, make agreements as to where its expansion will be limited. NATO does not say does not forego the possibility of including any nation. They, they don't. So far, that is against their policy to make any such agreement. Um, Ukraine can make an agreement saying we will not seek membership in NATO, but NATO, um, unless they change their policy, cannot make an agreement saying we would not accept them. Let's agree to disagree on on, on this specific uh, a, a topic. Um, maybe we can go to to Israel, Noah. Why do you believe that um, you know we should sort of retreat a little bit, or what do you think the U.S. should do there, and what what do you expect to happen as a result of that? Like, how, how might things play out, or how should they play out? Um, well, so with Israel, the United States hasn't actually given Israel any military aid yet, right? We've given zero, right? So whatever, you know, if you think Israel's like winning, beating up Hamas in Gaza or whatever, they're doing that without any American aid. In fact, even in, you know, uh, America gives Israel quite a bit of aid, but that aid, even if it's, were all military would only be 17% of Israel's military budget at peak and usually more like 13%. And so Israel actually doesn't need American military aid. Uh, we, you know, we need their technology more than they need our aid, honestly. Um, so we are contemplating giving them aid, right? There's aid in the this bill that has gotten stuck in Congress, right? Which includes Ukraine aid, uh, Israel aid, and border security. We may end up giving Israel a bunch of aid, but so far we haven't done it. I think that every, every headline 
about, you know, every, every piece of focus on the Israel conflict, it weakens the United States. Um, if you look at America's uh, position in the world, uh, overall, the world supported America on Ukraine. You know, uh, at United Nations resolutions, there were, you know, the, the resolutions went America's way overwhelmingly. There were a few abstentions and a few votes against, but overwhelmingly went America's way. But on Israel, Gaza, the, re the UN resolutions are all going against America and we're vetoing them. You know, we are vetoing, um, uh, you know, using our Security Council veto to veto stuff. But then there's there's General Assembly stuff. It's all going against Israel. The United States is taking major reputational hits uh, for support for Israel, even as behind the scenes, Biden is successfully restraining Netanyahu from doing idiotic things. Uh, Biden's you know, policy here has been effective such as it is. Obviously, the leftists will say, no, you're killing all the kids in Gaza and Biden could have stopped this by snapping his fingers. But Biden has stopped a lot of like, you know, Biden stopped them from cutting off water to the territory. Biden stopped them from doing a lot of, you know, sort of human rights violations in this war and made them sort of more obey the laws of war and then stop, you know, obviously, as you talked about, persuaded them not to open a second front with Hezbollah, which would have been really dumb. Um, so Biden is restraining the worst impulses of the Netanyahu government, but still taking a giant PR hit from this, right? Like, Everybody is pretty much pissed in America over this. And therefore, the, the less attention, you know, the, the less our foreign policy uh, in the world becomes defined by this, the better, because this is really a toxic uh, event for America. This is really hurting us in the eyes of the international community, um, not with domestic politics. Domestically, you know, everyone, everyone supports Israel and the leftists are nothing. Um, but then, but then in the in terms of the international community, we are, we are really taking a hit here. Um, and so we need to de-emphasize this, this conflict and, you know, we need to step back from it as much as possible. We need to refocus on Asia. And that's the one thing, Eric, that you haven't even mentioned or talked about the one region that you haven't even mentioned yet in this show, which is Asia, which is more important than Europe or the Middle East by far. That's where the importance is. That's where our, all our economic interests lie. And that's where by far the biggest threat exists. I, I would agree with you in the sense that macro, we shouldn't be worried about these other two regions. So my, my view is like, we should let the Europeans fend for the Ukrainians. And then I think the Israelis can handle themselves. I, 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 think, putting, I think putting the carrier groups in the Mediterranean and now the Red Sea to kind of say, hey, like, you know, we, we have the kind of ability to say no, no regional spin out with Iran. That seems reasonable. And I actually don't think that like the international community matters at this point. It's, 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 you have, you have two major power players, minor power players like Russia. Okay. Right? They're going to matter. The point is they're going to matter if, and when we fight China, they're really right. Matter. But is South Korea, Japan going to be like, oh, sorry, you supported Israel. So now we're not going to be on your side against China. No, but Indonesia might. And that's important. Um, and other countries. You're like, Indonesia, I, I don't, I don't who's think that? Indonesia. What's that? I've right. never heard of that. Who, 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 who is do you, that, to, is to that like protect Taiwan, you need Japan? Here? No, you need to protect Taiwan, you need Japan. You need the American uh, unsinkable aircraft carriers all over the Pacific that we can put missiles on, and then uh, Philippines. And that's where we've been spending most of our effort is with the Philippines, right? And that's where um, China is dusting up with the Philippines. And so you know, if we can be war... in the northern Philippine, the Philippine Islands, then we can we can be protecting Taiwan. Okay, so 
a wider war against China, which is what it would become, will be fought, a lot of it will be fought in and around Indonesia, as it as World War II was. If you look at all those names, Guadalcanal, uh, or like um, any of the, the, you know, names of battles of, of places in World War II, so many of them are in Indonesia, somewhere in the Philippines. Uh, Indonesia lies across all the shipping routes that connects China to the rest of the world. And it lies all along the naval routes that allow China's Navy to get to the Indian Ocean and uh, the, you know, the South Pacific. Um, Indonesia is extremely important. Uh, India is extremely important. Um, you know, I don't know. India. No, no friend of China. No friend of China. Um, but yeah, um, other countries in the region are definitely going to be important. Thailand is going to be important. Vietnam is going to be important. Um, because it lies right along. Also, also not a friend of China. Not a friend of China. China has almost no friends in the region. Right. So, has... so my, my, my point is that the Israel policy is not going to change these core regional players with maybe the exception of Indonesia. But even there, I mean, if you lose Indonesia, I don't think of them as a great military power, right? They have a ton of people. They have a ton of people, but... And, and then the reality is we don't care about the shipping. The shipping is actually, it's, it's, it's existential for China to be able to have shipping go through the Indian Ocean. But the U.S., it doesn't actually matter. The, the bigger hit for the U.S. is we have a lot of dependence on China today. And, and we need to think about our manufacturing. But overall, like China is really? the one that's going to actually have to be playing significant defense in a war like this. Yeah, but we need, we need the uh, ability to shut them off, to shut them down, to shut them off. That will be really important because China can outproduce us like by, you know, massive factors. China can outproduce us. And the reason we won World War II is because we outproduced them. Right, we could outproduce Japan and Germany together with our arms tied behind our back in World War II. Right, that's why we won. Um, yes, but I mean, there's also some some nice benefits for us. We had two giant oceans protecting us, right? Um, we we didn't have people on our kind of doorstep. Uh, obviously, there's there's you know Battle of the Atlantic, important battle at Midway. Like you, you actually do have some pretty big shifts in terms of uh, the oceans would have would have mattered eventually but they didn't end up mattering because they never got close yeah but i mean american production really ramped up at the end of the war right like everyone loves to talk about the production statistics and it's like yeah in 1943 and 44 when basically we already had t a table with three legs and we were just leaning on on both of them right like we're, we're post stalingrad at that at that point it takes you a while to build that stuff it takes you because you first you have to build the factories and you have to build the tools for the factories. You have to tool the factories up and that takes years. Um, it will take quicker for China right now. Um, you know, when you look at China and you look at them building all this massive overcapacity of vehicles and machinery and blah, 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 and steel. And you're like, why are you building all this? Why are you building all this? Why do you think they're building all this? But but all that production, it, it, it's going to give them basically like a literal navy. Like they can they can do the first island chain, but they can't project any power outside of that. Like it's like a very small percentage of their navy. So what? So they can't fucking what? Yeah, you, you have to have satellites that work for those missiles. So if the Americans' anti-satellite weapons start shooting, then it's like, how are you going to land those hypersonic missiles if you don't have satellites? First of all, do you think we have better anti-satellite weapons than them? Yes. <laughs> really? What, we, we've, like, been, we've been in space way longer than them. SpaceX puts what's, 80% what's, what's of an example of the United States space. Are you trying to say that like the Chinese have more expertise in space? Uh, no, but they've fired, they've tested a lot more anti-satellite weapons than we have. At least that we maybe know. we just haven't announced all the tests that we have. I, I mean, like I, to, to think that the Chinese have more experience in space, I think is like 
look, I'm all for more. We should we should fund more space stuff. I'm I'm in agreement there. You know, most of our space stuff is uh, is now is SpaceX, right? So you know, Elon Elon the fascist could you know could be helping us uh, against the Chinese, although he's a little compromised with the whole Tesla thing. So very uh, you know tricky situation there. Elon is right. Uh, I think Elon's um, Elon's Elon's loyalties with the U.S. I I, I don't know him, but I, I think I would so. Guess push comes to shove, he yeah he cuts the Chinese factory and you know calls it a day. I hope, I hope so. That was true of Henry Ford, and so far Elon has done everything Henry Ford has done except leave his company to his son. Um, but otherwise, Elon. Musk yeah, let's has... just hope we don't get a Ford Foundation. The Elon, the the Musk Foundation is uh, woke and and communist is the Ford Foundation. Oh, we will. I mean, have you seen Elon's kids? We will. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're actually have you seen Elon's right. kids? It's, it's absolutely scary gonna happen. Of course, it's going to happen. Um, but anyway, I guess the point is no. So, so Henry Ford is a really interesting character. He tried. He sort of tried to leave his company, or was almost bullied into leaving his company to his head of security, Bennett, who was like the union buster, who was actually just a mafia dude. <laughs> he was like a mafia thug who almost took over Ford, and in the end, um, uh, basically. Uh, Henry Ford's um, grandson had to go in there with like uh, like an FBI guy with a gun and force the guy out of Henry Ford's office. We had his boots up on the desk. <laughs> anyway, very interesting history. But isn't there like a, a book about something with Brazil and Henry Ford? I haven't read that one. And, and some I read like, a couple. Of books, you know, I haven't read that one. Ah, uh, okay. And then obviously there's the book. I haven't read it, but. People talk about the production during the war, right? Like they were responsible for all our plane production. They shifted from cars to planes, right? Um, yes, they shifted from cars to planes. They built the B-24. Um, not quite as good as the B-17, but not bad and in high volumes. Um, we will <laughs> To fight a war with China, we'll absolutely need either Elon Musk or whoever's in charge of Elon Musk stuff after Elon Musk. You know, like we will need that stuff. We'll need Tesla and SpaceX a lot. And Andrew and Andrew, well, I mean, that's not Elon, but we'll, you know, Andrew, Skydio. Yeah, no, but I mean, we, we do have um, American dynamic entrepreneurs building in LA, of all places, uh, the future of American defense. Eric, can you get Palmer on the show? Or no, actually, we, we get Brian on the show, Brian Schimpf. Um, uh, I've actually Zoomed with him. I don't know Palmer at all. But, um, but yeah, we need to, uh, like, those guys need to scale up because, like, Andrew is making, like, very small batch stuff right now. You know, that, like, if you... Ukraine is out there making like cardboard drones in like vast numbers and Andrew is making fancy stuff, but it's not making a lot of fancy stuff. And they, you know, we, we're going to, they're going to need to find private markets. I feel like, and this is true of Skydio. Skydio is working on this right now. It's, it's having trouble. Um, we need, they, the drone companies need to find private markets so they can scale up volume because Scaling up volume from zero is a lot harder than scaling up volume than than retooling. So when you're talking about Ford and you're talking about how they 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 basically switched from cars to bombers in World War II, China can do that with all the like manufacturing stuff it does now. It can just switch from cars to bombers or whatever the equivalent is now. Missiles, right? Um, drones, missiles, and drones. But then we don't necessarily have the stuff to switch, right? We're gonna have to like. For, you know, on the day the balloon goes up for war, we're going to start, we're going to send out a couple guys around to start looking at sites for factories and find out that they're blocked by local fucking NIMBYs. 
That's what's going to happen on the first day of a U.S.-China war. Do you think in a China, like an actual hot war with China, we're going to be listening to some California NIMBY talking about CEQA? I would like to imagine no, and that there's some reservoir of United States political will that will immediately bitch slap all the NIMBYs when our nation needs to. Um, But I have been negatively surprised before, and I am... The fact is, when World War II happened, we didn't even have those guys. It wasn't even a question of whether or not we'd have to listen to the sequa assholes because we didn't have any sequa assholes. There's no sequa of any kind. And like, you know, we were just like, oh, it's our land now. Uh, we were a lot, you know, we were not politically unified. I mean, like plenty of people hated FDR. Some guys even thought about trying to assassinate him. But we were a lot more politically unified than right now when basically like, you know, a quarter of the country thinks that Biden wasn't even legitimately elected. Like, um, you know, the, the idea of like, that's not my president. Everyone just impeaches everyone else now, just like every single time, just for like a pro forma, you know, thing. It's like, hi, you're welcome. You're impeached. Um, this is not the nation we were in World War II and we need to get a little serious. Um, we're not yet serious in the way we need to be. And when you looked at, like COVID, for example, Operation Warp Speed went great. Uh, by the way, if you're looking for good things Trump did, that was the number one good thing. Operation Warp Speed was amazing. Um, Trump didn't do any of it. He, the military did it. But he he was wise to delegate it and hand it off to the people who could do it um, instead of to Jared Kushner, who quickly realized that he could not do it. Um, and so the military did it. And it worked. But um, so, so if you want to praise Trump, praise him for that, uh, operation warp speed went great and not just operation warp speed, but also the vaccine manufacturing effort afterwards, we could make MRNA vaccines and China could not. That was kind of amazing. We were able to produce a thing that China was not able to produce, not just because we could invent it and they could invent it. They knew how to do it. They couldn't produce all the little like lipid nanoparticles. They didn't have the highly specialized factories. You know, their supply chain just did not work for this. Like they they could produce like simple shit in massive volumes. They couldn't produce the high tech stuff in large volumes like we did. Um, that's not going to win us a war, but it was cool. Uh, we couldn't produce the simple stuff. We couldn't produce masks or whatever. Um, we don't build any ships, right? Ships are, you know, I mean, ships are easy to sink, but they're also platforms to fire missiles. We fire missiles. We need where do we fire the missiles from a balloon. American coastline? No. All the islands, all the islands in the Pacific that we control and our allies there. And the per- perk of those islands is you can't sink an island. Yeah, but the un- the unperk, the the downside of an island is it can't sail around. It can't move around. So we can't have enough missiles to defeat the Chinese Navy on every single island. We don't have that many missiles. We have to instead, and they don't have the range, we have to instead put them on mobile platforms that we can use to sink the Chinese Navy. That's why we have ships. Uh, if we just like you know, Chinese, the Chinese Navy is usually not going to be in range of missiles from Diego Garcia or from the Philippines bases or from Guam or from um, Okinawa. Sorry, not Diego Garcia. Mm, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that we have the medium range missiles and we've actually been working on them since we moved out of a treaty, right? The Russians backed out of the treaty uh, a few years we ago on missiles, those kind of like medium of range ballistic. We've got a few. Right, but I think we've been ramping up in terms of production. I mean, look, we just spent, we have an $886 billion defense bill that just passed. Like, I would hope that we're that putting a little bit of money into all yes, of Yes, fine. America's great at writing down large numbers on a spreadsheet and saying, this is how much money we've committed to this thing. We're absolutely, like, 
that doesn't mean things get built. America has learned to confuse numbers on a page with actual physical things in the real world. And this is killing us. And like, yes, we can say we have $800 billion military budget, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, first of all, healthcare, high salaries, constant deployment to places we don't need to deploy things to, but we do anyway, we're sending out our Navy to just constantly patrol the world. Like that, that deployment takes up a massive amount, like a whole lot of little deployments in random places in Africa and Middle East and God knows where, like a lot of these little deployments, um, take a lot of our military budget and then building large legacy things that are going to get sunk in about five seconds. I won't say which, but you know what they are. Um, this, this takes a huge amount of our military budget. Like the idea that, oh, we spend this much money. Look at this number on this paper. Like, you know, look at numbers and paper. Look at how much money we spend on housing and look at how much housing we actually get, right? Look at how much money we spend on healthcare and look at how much healthcare we actually get. So, so I'm, I'm genuinely curious. You, do you really believe that the, the Chinese are going to start a hot war with, with Taiwan and then they're going to shoot a hypersonic missile that somehow is able to pinpoint in the middle of the Pacific Ocean some carrier group and hit just like a kamikaze, hit the, you know, whatever USS, whatever aircraft carrier. And then Boy. and then the U.S. is just going to be like, oh, like we don't have war production. Like, what do you think would happen? Yes. Like we've yeah. got plenty of military assets all over the world that would, what would immediately start to... What's going to happen? Yes. You're, yes, that is what would and and so what what happens to China? Like they're just like oh well we we're energy independent. No, like there's no oil going to China anymore. They're over. Like the energy shuts off. China makes oil from coal with the Fisher Tropsch process, just like Germany did in World War II, until they can break our blockade. How much how much oil oil does China oil. import as a percentage of its energy mix every day? Do you know what the Fisher Tropsch process is? How, how did that work out for the Germans not having access to oil? amazing because they were able to sustain with very little oil they were able to sustain like this massive military campaign that they really shouldn't have been able to sustain yeah and they ultimately still lost because they didn't have access to oil like daniel jorgen goes through no, this in the in the book the prize lost. that was not why they lost man they they no they they lost for other reasons they lost because of bad strategic choices being overwhelmed by allied you know materiel um, and just not having any allies and also being behind in some key technologies like heavy bombers. Um, so, so strategic mistakes by Hitler and his, his idiot generals, uh, but the even more idiotic Hitler, um, the vast amounts of stuff produced by America and Russia. And, um, uh, we know we were giving Russia a lot of their stuff during that time. Uh, and finally, well, at least, uh, yeah. we had, we had heavy bombers. My, my grandfather went over and dropped a bunch of explodey things on their head, and that helped. Oh, your then, grandfather was on, a, on one of the flying fortresses? Uh, B-17, yeah. Not, yes, the B-17. Oh, okay. Wow. That's, 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 a, yeah. that's like, the more I've read about World War II history, to me, that seems like the, the craziest, like, uh, military role for an American is to just keep crazy. flying from the UK and then the Luftwaffe is just sending out their, their fighter planes to just take you down. Actually, maybe the convoys in the North Atlantic when they didn't have a way of dealing with the U-boats. But other than that, those, those seem like the two worst, if you were like pulling straws, it's just like, oh yeah, I'm on one of these uh, slow moving, laden with explosives planes flying over Germany without any fight, long range fighter support. Yes. And um, 
right and it sucked one time but but actually the biggest danger wasn't from the um wasn't from the fighters it was from the flak the germans would just shoot clouds of metal shards into the air and you just fly through them and your momentum would kill you like one time my grandfather uh you know realized that his his um uh shoe strap was undone so he he or foot strap or whatever it was so he bends down to like read you know tighten the foot strap when he get when he sits back up his head cushion is gone you know had he not had he not bent over you know i wouldn't exist um and then there were many such stories but anyway that's actually a good had, point is that lost... they, the, i was just going to say the anti-aircraft guns right so instead of making anti-tank weapons to stop the russians they had to shift because of the strategic bombing to making more anti-aircraft guns because they didn't have enough planes because all the planes had started to be shot down and we yes and we in fact we took out a lot more planes on the ground than we ever took out in the air uh, we just destroyed all their airfields and destroyed all their, you know, planes in progress of being made and just everything. But um, so so Phillips O'Brien has this great book on this called How the War Was Won, which basically shows like the massive amounts of resources the Nazis diverted toward making um, ships, which was dumb. They, you know, making U-boats basically and commercial shipping and trying to do this stuff and basically just getting the hell beaten out of them by us. And then also trying to make planes and getting their planes just utterly destroyed by us. And then, um, and we destroyed their factories. They couldn't produce, they couldn't keep up German, like the, the battle of Kursk was this giant tank battle that destroyed so many of the, you know, the, the Soviets defeated the Germans in this massive tank battle, even though they took like double the casualties, they overwhelmed the Germans. And this, this is our metaphor for the war, but that was like a very small amount of like German industrial production that would have gone toward, you know, replenishing those tanks, but they didn't have it because they were using the industrial production to to just produce ship trying to produce ships and planes and stuff to fight off american ships and planes and so like we overwhelm the hell out of them and i'm not saying china will do the same to us you know i'm not a doomer about this but i'm saying if we don't think about that being the failure mode that being the possibility of us losing things then we're putting ourselves in great danger and i'm not saying like yes obviously china will beat us and blah 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 blah, blah. i don't think that i think if we don't take this seriously there is a chance that China, there is a, not a 2% tail risk chance, but a 50% chance, a huge, a big chance that China will actually do to us what we did to Japan and Germany in World War II. Yeah, look, I, Richard Overy also, how the Allies won is excellent on this. It's like kind of like six key points and talks about oh, I need to read that. the Atlantic, overall production. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, I should read that. But, but strategic bombing, Stalingrad specifically, and then Kursk being the kind of one-two blow on the Eastern Front. But the, I, I, I agree with your point, though, that, look, we should be taking manufacturing in the United States much more seriously, both from a supply chain risk. And, and I, I, I broaden that to NAFTA, right? Like putting something in Mexico is completely fine. Putting it in Canada is fine, right? Uh, you know, like I actually, uh, I think it was your blog post. You talked about the steel thing where yeah. it was like everyone's throwing their hands up about this whole like steel. And it's like we get most of our steel, what, from Mexico and Canada? From Canada, primarily, a little bit from Mexico. and then Yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, we get zero. We get like 1% from China. It's like less than 1% from China. So so I, I think we should just be strategically thinking about is like everything that we need strategically needs to be in North America. And then maybe raw resources can come from other places, Australia, from South America, and, and then, you know, rare earth minerals, all, all these like core parts of the modern supply chain. And then obviously semiconductors is a... Right. That I'll, is, I'll, I think, the harder one because that's yeah. a lot of human capital more than anything else. Right. And, you know, even just shifting that stuff out of China to like Korea and Japan uh, is, is so useful. 
Yeah, and I think that it seems like that that's a, a promising thing in terms of if you can't get everything out of Taiwan, if you can at least get some of that into Korea and Japan on the, the higher end semiconductors over the next decade, assuming you know you don't believe these timelines that Xi Jinping is saying 2027 and to his generals or whatever. But if, if we get a decade of, of actually coherent policy across, look, Trump's, Trump started it, maybe not as effective. Biden is actually, whether you think he's effective or not, he's throwing a lot of money around in terms of reshoring. And if we get another presidential administration that does that, I, I think we're going to be in much better shape. Trump was what Trump was really useful for was changing ideas. You know, before Trump, this sort of like the the zombie sort of like free trade, like if we just let China take all our industry, they'll eventually liberalize thing was still like Obama was still saying this in 2015. Like th this was still Trump changed it entirely. Our the entire Biden policy toward China has been made was made possible by Trump. It is. Yeah, it's more effective than what Trump did. Um, but it's but it was made possible by Trump, this whole shift. Right. And um, Trump produced a lot of needed shifts on a lot of things, but wasn't able to follow through because he was so chaotic. You know, he was like a guy who yells for things to be done and then just like doesn't even notice when they're not done. Um, and now he's old. The difference is between Trump and Biden. They're both extremely old. Uh, Biden delegates, you know, like it's it's Jake Sullivan and guys like that who are actually running our government. Um, for Trump, it would be it would be Trump himself doing more. And, you know, when, when Trump could delegate things went often, they went OK. Right. Like when he delegated uh, Operation Warp Speed, um, then it went great. But Trump, you know, delegates less because he sort of mercurially decides to interfere with this and that. And he appoints less competent people. You know, I don't think Jake Sullivan's done everything right, but I think he's fundamentally a very competent guy. Um, and he's been very, very competent, like sort of shifting our po our posture toward deterring China. I think he knows on that front, he knows what needs to be done. Um, Blinken has been very, very, very good at getting the nations of Asia aligned against China. Um, all the, you know, the, you talked about all these countries that don't like China. Well, they, of course they don't like China, but that doesn't mean they're going to just like automatically be our friend. We've got to court them. And so now we're building bases in the Philippines for the first time in like decades and decades. We colonized the damn Philippines, you know, and the Philippines, like they kicked out our bases because they were like, you know, like, fuck you colonizer. But now they're like, hey, how about putting some bases here? And Blinken, you know, did that. He handled that. He, um, the, the strategic partnership with Vietnam, like the, you know, our old communist enemy now, now turn rapidly turning into our friend, um, Modi's India, like, which was done over the loud objections of progressives who hate the shit out of Modi, right? Like, yes, all the like Indian people we know in Silicon Valley, like Modi, but like, but progressives hate Modi. Um, and, uh, and yet here we are inviting Modi to Congress and doing all these military deals and moving manufacturing to India and things like that. This has been great. Trump produced the ideas that led to this. Not all the ideas, but many of the ideas, many needed shifts. Trump was like a, a more of a meteor than a man. You know, he's like he 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 just crashed into the um he, he didn't drain the swamp. That didn't happen. Uh nor was that a thing we needed to have happen because civil servants, continuity in the civil service is important. But Trump did completely change our thinking on trade, on China, on you know, a lot of these things, industrial policy in ways that are now we're now moving forward. And on the right, there have been people like uh, like Saurabh Amari, 
um, who are thinking in a much more constructive direction about how to make a conservative industrial policy that's like post-Trump, where instead of just yelling at people to build factories that never get built like Trump did, you know, or, you know, paying a bunch of uh, paying a bunch of people with a whole bunch of writers and subsidies attached like Biden does, uh, or, you know, writers and, um, you know, various provisions for various groups. Um, you know, now conservatives are starting to think, how do we do a conservative industrial policy? You know, how do we do this in a way that's neither Trump nor Biden, but but a third, a secret third? And then, like, they're trying to think of this. Um, and this is good. This is all, you know, Trump was necessary to produce this thinking shift. But that doesn't mean Trump is the man to run this thing. Like, Trump the, Trump the you know, yeah, disruptor. So, so maybe with time, okay, to not claim that this is your point of view. So I want to just kind of put it out there. Trump will be seen for the things that actually he was important in terms of actually changing the the direction of a lot of things without necessarily having the execution behind it. And actually, whether it's a Democrat, Biden, or the next Republican or the next Democrat, the, the stance on China, the stance on trade, the, the, some of this stuff, um, he, he may actually be seen as, as in a more positive light for, for that set of kind of, beliefs and or changing the conversation, but not necessarily for uh, who he is. Right. If that happens, if and only if we succeed, if we manage to deter China from a war or, you know, God forbid we have a war, defeat China, which we would then need to do. If we do that, you know, if we revitalize our industry, you know, American industry, if we, um, and if we do all that, then I think that you're right. That That is what will happen. But if we falter and sort of give up on all that and just, you know, instead spend all our time thinking about like ant wokeness culture wars and, and whatnot and spending all our effort on that and like civil war LARPs and fantasies and then, you know, withdraw from an active role in the world and let China and, and Russia basically take it over because, you know, they, they want to. Um, you know, if we just if we just withdraw from the world and let all our allies go to hell and get taken over because we're like, well, we've got these oceans <laughs> like oceans are not that big a deal. Ultimately, um, if we do all those things and we fail, then Trump will be remembered as the reason we failed. But if we succeed, then Trump will be remembered as an important ingredient into that success. So I think the key here is make sure that we succeed. You know, make sure we do what we need to do. And, and revitalize our industry, you know, gather an effective coalition of alliances um, and, and, you know, secure American industrial and geopolitical, um, if, I, wouldn't, I won't say supremacy because I think that's gone, but at least uh, stability uh, and power, uh, you know, that's what we need to do. And I think we need to just focus on, on winning that, focus on how, how to do that. And we need the right for this. We need conservatives to be on there because a couple of reasons. Number one, eventually a Republican will get elected. If it's not Trump this time, it'll be someone next time. You know, it'll be someone in 2028. There, Republicans will win and they, you know, they already won the House. They, they will win the Senate at some point. Like this, these things will happen and we need them to be responsible and to, you know, like, and to focus on these things and to not tear everything up just because they feel like they have to tear. In, in the Cold War, the, there was this adage that politics stops at the water's edge. 
that was never actually true. You know, Nixon and LBJ and these people would rip into each other over foreign policy, you know, often very hypocritically and cynically, but they would, um, but, but, uh, at the same time, we had lots of policy continuity on how we opposed the Soviet Union. Democrats, neither Democrats nor Republicans ever got weak against the USSR. Um, you know, Carter was there like giving money to and giving weapons to like Afghani Mujahideen to fight the USSR and boycotting the Olympics and all this stuff. And, you know, he was the most liberal guy that we had. LBJ was obviously, you know, like uh, uh, the Vietnam War was not good, but then he was obviously tough. Uh, and so, so Democrats were always like, fight the USSR, and Republicans were too. And yes, they sniped at each other over how to do it, but they always, they never lost sight of the need to do it. The Today could be different or it could be the same, and we need to make it the same. We need to make this time turn out like last time when we won. That's my pitch. Anyway, I don't know. I think that's a great place to, to, to wrap. Noah and Dan, this has been an awesome, uh, awesome discussion. Thanks for uh, this double, double episode of Moment of Zen and Econ 102. It's been fun. Good to see you, Noah. Good to see you, Dan.